2 Chronicles chapter 28. We'll begin reading in verse 8. The men of Israel took captive 200,000 of their relatives, women, sons, and daughters. They also took much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. But a prophet of the Lord was there, whose name was Oded. And he went out to meet the army that came to Samaria and said to them, Behold, because the Lord, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, he gave them into your hand, but you have killed them in a rage that has reached up to heaven. And now you intend to subjugate the people of Judah and Jerusalem, male and female, as your slaves. Have you not sins of your own against the Lord your God? Now hear me and send back the captives from your relatives whom you have taken, for the fierce wrath of the Lord is upon you. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Matt. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Kyle Sheely. Yes, we made it five years, and I prepared a sermon all weekend. I'm just kidding. We, uh, we actually were able to get away. I have the distinct advantage of not having to do this every week, so I can agree to speak uh, six weeks in advance. So although it may seem like Matt is a jerk, he is not, because he let me know about this weeks in advance. Um, so, uh, yeah, but it's, it's good to be with you. One of the advantages, too, of uh, we follow the lectionary. We preach often from the lectionary. You may have noticed that if you've been with us for a while. So Matt does not need to have a, a plan of his own other than to follow the lectionary. So there's nothing that he needs to have in place other than who is speaking on a Sunday, and then we can just look at the lectionary and have that kind of flow from week to week. So I have known also for six weeks what the text is, and when I tell you what the gospel lectionary is today, if you don't already know what it is, uh, you'll also realize that my job is very easy. The text this morning is the Good Samaritan. There's probably, yeah, yeah, so yeah, my job is getting easier and easier, you're realizing. Uh, there's probably not a person among us who couldn't at least give a, a rough sketch of the details of that, of that parable. Uh, even if you're not familiar with the Christian scriptures, probably, uh, the Good Samaritan is one that you would know. It's part of our uh, cultural imagination, zeitgeist. Good, James. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you, you could probably you know, recount the, the details of the, of the parable, what's, what's interesting to me, what's kind of striking to me is that uh, I realized, and I, I've studied scripture for quite a while, and uh, have never realized that there are details of this parable that um, predate Jesus, and here's what I mean by that. We, we looked at the first part in our scripture reading this morning of this passage from 2 Chronicles chapter 28, and I was just struck this week to learn that um, there's something really similar. You, you'll hear echoes of it. We'll, we'll read on in that passage in just a moment. Echoes of the Good Samaritan parable that predate Jesus' telling of this parable in Luke's gospel. So we've got this odd account of um, the 
the, the Jewish people from Samaria, so the Israelites from the region of Samaria, taking captive their relatives in Judea, taking captive 200,000 of their relatives. And um, so the Samaritans conquer their, their Judean relatives. They force them into slavery. This might sound like some of your Thanksgivings. Uh, the prophet Oded, prophet Oded, who just kind of appears in the narrative, comes along and says to the Samaritans, essentially, stop mistreating your relatives. Stop mistreating your relatives. So take into account your own sins. Release these captives. Release your relatives. And then here's what happens next in verses 14 and 15. We'll skip down. So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the princes and all the assembly. And the men who have been mentioned by name, and I'm not going to skip their names because I, I don't want to try and pronounce them. The men who have been mentioned by name rose and took the captives and with the spoil, they clothed all who were naked among them. Here's what's really striking to me. Have you seen this before? Are you, are you familiar with this kind of echo that Jesus is drawing on? The Samaritans clothed them, gave them sandals, provided them with food and drink, and anointed them. And carrying all the feeble among them on donkeys, the alarm bell is going off in your head now, if you recall some of the details of the parable of the Good Samaritan. This predates Jesus. This endures, we know, even to today. In fact, just this week, and I'm, I'm going to dip my toe into some dangerous water here and um, address something that doesn't need to be political but has kind of become political. You familiar with the organization Samaritan's Purse? So talking about the Good Samaritan being part of our kind of cultural imagination, this organization Samaritan's Purse run by Franklin Graham, uh, thank you, and there, there's kind of some, well, let me, let me say this, some of you have, as part of your Christmas experiences, put together shoe boxes. Anybody assemble shoe boxes with supplies for kids, children needs, so toys, care items, those sorts of things. That's part of how we spent my Christmases growing up. So they, they provide relief to, to children. There was uh, just this week, in fact, so talking about the enduring uh, uh, significance of this parable, there's this appeal to Franklin Graham, to this organization, to divert some of their aid supplies to help children who are suffering at the border. Anybody hear about this? And just this week, uh, Samaritan's Purse, the organization, released a kind of a, a press release, I suppose, uh, saying that they are um, uh, taking some of their aid supplies and, and deploying it to, to children at the border. And the people who had been kind of um, uh, taking this organization to task, wanting them to, to do this for, for children at the border, uh, don't necessarily see eye to eye with Franklin Graham. Anybody hear about this this week? And just this week, this has been happening. This is, it, the parable endures kind of twofold, right? Because the obvious, the Samaritan's purse, it's an obvious allusion to this parable of the Good Samaritan. But also, as we'll see as we, as we look at this parable, what's significant about this parable is not just that somebody is being nice to somebody else, but it's that somebody is risking their... Uh, 
clearly stated boundary line, boundary marker, identity, um, safety, to kind of go across that line and to provide care for and to provide, to provide mercy for uh, somebody in need. So we've got that detail in place. And so what happened this week um, seems particularly striking to me, uh, a particularly striking example of the, the parable's ability to, to kind of endure. And what gives the parable its, its force? Well, I suppose um, <laughs> it shouldn't come as a surprise to us, but sacrificial love and mercy are stronger than the barriers that we've set up. And the parable gives expression to that in a, in a really great way. So um, before I, I'm not going to say any more than that. <laughs> Other than to say, as Rebecca Bartels here, we, and, hi Rebecca, a couple weeks ago we were in the preschool class, we taught the lesson on the Good Samaritan, and I was reading through the uh, parable, talking through the parable with the children, I said uh, two, two robbers came up, they, they stole all this man's uh, possessions, they, they beat him up, they hurt him bad, uh, they took his clothes, and of course the preschoolers are sort of half listening and half doing whatever else they like to do. Uh, and one preschooler, who shall remain nameless, looked up at exactly that point and, and she said, all of his clothes? <laughs> <laughs> so I had to stop and just gather myself for just a moment and yes, indeed, all of his clothes. <laughs> There's some interesting questions that give rise to this parable. I'd like to ask another few questions as we read through this parable, none of them probably as entertaining as how naked was the beaten man, <laughs> but maybe, I don't know, maybe the Holy Spirit can still speak to us uh, with, with these questions before us. So the parable setup begins in Luke 10, verse 25, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So the first couple of questions there. What's written in the law? He's asking a lawyer. Presumably he knows. And the second question is the important one, right? How do you apply it? How do you interpret it? Which is a question that should echo through the centuries and uh, uh, we could apply it to ourselves, right? Not only do we know what is written, but can we interpret it? Can we apply it? Can we put uh, feet to, to our Christian faith? And he answered... His famous answer, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus. And we get a couple of notes from the narrator of Luke's gospel. So we get here that the lawyer is putting Jesus to the test, first of all, and also that the lawyer is trying to justify himself. So an attempt to kind of paint the lawyer uh, to, to bring his motivations to the surface, right? They're not necessarily pure. Desiring to justify himself, the lawyer said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus begins his reply, not with a straightforward answer, necessarily. You have answered correctly, blah, blah. He says, a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. So he starts with a, a story, starts into a story. So the first couple of questions, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So uh, what's in the scripture? How do you interpret it? How do you apply it? That's important. And then the third question, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Uh, 
I was reading through the text this week over and over, just kind of trying to, to look at, examine it from, from different angles. I, I couldn't help but look at this particular question through the lens of our um, kind of uh, relationally malnourished culture. So I realize there's something else going on here when he asked this question, but what if we were to read this question kind of from a, a place of desperation? Think about uh, those in our culture who are really without close relationships, maybe feel a little bit isolated. So the question, who is my neighbor, that the lawyer asks has to do with uh, what boundaries should we put up? What, who is it okay to love? Who, who should we direct our love toward? Which is a good question. We need, to, we need to know um, and really put some thought into who our neighbor is. But I can't help but read this from kind of a different place, a place of kind of exasperation. Uh, not just who is my neighbor, but please someone tell me who my neighbor might be. That feeling of, of isolation, that feeling of uh, loneliness. I might read that question from, from that place, a place maybe of desperation. The German philosopher Paul Ricoeur said, the gospel would totally condemn the modern world, would denounce it as a world without the neighbor, the dehumanized world of abstract, anonymous, distant relationships. We have this idea here that it might be the case that even though we have relationships, there's still a sense of isolation. And this question, who is my neighbor, reading this from today's context, we might really need to examine that question. Uh, who am I letting into my life? Who have I taken a relational risk to, uh, to get to know? Jesus, as he begins this parable, wants the lawyer to fix his gaze not only upon the law, so what is written in the law, how do you interpret it, but also upon the face of a hurting person. So again, Luke 10.30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So this is the only parable that's geographically located. So there's a, there's a 3,300 foot drop in this journey from Jerusalem down to Jericho. When it says down to Jericho, it's really going down. It's a 17 mile trip. It could be made in a day because it's downhill but it's full of treacherous terrain, and the hills on this route provided uh, cover for uh, bandits, for robbers. So it's not surprising that robbers show up in this parable. It's also not surprising that priests and Levites show up in this parable because this is a common route that they take to and from the temple in Jerusalem. So in verse 31, now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So this detail that they passed by on the other side suggests that the priest and the Levite might be concerned with contracting something called corpse impurity, uh, which would be uh, a way of uh, disobeying the law. So in first century Jewish thought about such matters, corpse impurity or coming into contact with a dead body, travels vertically from the dead body. So it's, it's prohibited for priests to, uh, to come in contact with a, with a corpse. They would be ceremonially unclean. So when, when the text says that they, they passed by on the other side, there's this idea that they, they don't even want to get close to the body. In fact, they can't even, if you 
think of it in, in uh, spatial terms, they can't go over to the body, lean over, and look, because if the body is dead, expired, they would have already contracted corpse impurity. So Jesus is setting up this parable to kind of put two laws next to each other, and again, to test the lawyer's ability to apply the law. So the lawyer has supplied the first law that's set at odds here, which is from Leviticus 19.18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus wants to contrast that with, a, with another law from Leviticus chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. We read there that the Lord said to Moses, here's this corpse impurity thing, give the following instructions to the priests, the descendants of Aaron. A priest must not make himself ceremonially unclean by touching the dead body of a relative. The only exceptions are his closest relatives. So uh, scholar Richard Bauckham comments on this encounter, or rather non-encounter, between the priest and the, the half-dead man. He says, if the man is clearly alive, then for the priest to help him would be to run the risk of the man dying while in contact with the priest, who would thus contract corpse impurity. He goes on to say, alternatively, as I think is more likely, the man is unconscious, and the priest cannot tell whether he is dead or alive without coming up close. So for the priest within this parable, the situation presents a, a real conundrum. It's not just a matter of which command is more important, but before he can go, even go about solving or uh, answering that ethical conundrum, he must stop and ask this sort of odd question, how alive is the man? So I'm reminded of the words of, uh, I think it's Billy Crystal, his character Miracle Max in uh, The Princess Bride. Uh, there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. So I want to pause here, of all places, and exhort us as a community with the first of these questions. Are we close enough to one another to tell if we're dead or alive? So the priest and the Levite pass by. They play it safe. And I wonder sometimes if we're in danger of doing the same. So those around us can maybe appear alive on the outside, but as we all know, that's not always the case. And I would submit that we can't tell whether one another is dead or alive without coming up close in relationship. And it's, it's, not, it's not an easy thing to do to come up close in relationship. Of course, that takes time, and we don't want to go around necessarily bearing all of our wounds to one another that creates a different kind of unhealthy environment. But I think there is a first step that we could take. Stephanie Chappelle spoke a few weeks ago, and she um, exhorted us to, to take a relational risk. And uh, that has been sort of burning in my mind since, since she said those words a few weeks ago. So I wonder if we might just take the first step of a relational risk, even maybe within the community of Solid Rock, to... Um, maybe begin to form the kinds of relationships that uh, we know whether one another is dead or alive. I'm just going to leave that point there. Let's move on in the parable. So in verse 31, a priest passes by. In verse 32, a Levite passes by. And then here in verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So some important background 
uh, on Jews and Samaritans and their relationship. The Samaritans, of all groups who acknowledged the law of Moses, and they did, are the least likely to keep it correctly, according to Jews. So however much a Jewish audience may have disagreed among themselves about the proper interpretation of the, of the Torah, they could agree that the Samaritans did not interpret it correctly, right? So there's, they at least have that in common, that the Samaritans are a common enemy. So Jesus' audience's expectation here, this is another interesting kind of detail. You get the, the priests, the Levites, and then what the audience is expecting is an Israelite. So this common progression is priest, Levite, Israelite, priest, Levite, Israelite. So when the prophets speak, the, the priests, the Levites, and the Israelites, the people of Israel. So for Jesus to go from a priest to a Levite to a Samaritan completely wrong foots the crowd. It would be as if they could sort of fill in the blank, right? So we pray in a Trinitarian formulation in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I hope you all know that. I'm getting blank stares. <laughs> third, third person in the Trinity? Anybody? Okay. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It would be akin to, I read one, one scholar who said it would be akin to saying the shock value at least, in the name of the Father, the Son, and Satan. Something like that. So this, you get a sense of the enmity. And if you don't need to read a commentator to figure this out. In fact, just before this episode in Luke chapter 9, the author, speaking of Jesus, says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans, uh-oh, to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? So you kind of get a sense of the shock value that's at play here in the parable. Such is the state of the relationship. And I don't think we have to strain our minds too hard to think of a similar sort of dysfunction and uh, in-group, out-group dynamic in our contemporary culture. You're looking really holy this morning. I appreciate that. The Samaritan went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal. Think back to that scripture reading from Second Chronicles. Brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So in a, in a surprise twist, the Samaritan in the story turns out to be the exemplar of correct interpretation of the Torah. He's also an example of, to us in, in many ways, but perhaps most of all in the relational risk he takes to help the Jewish victim. Another way that this parable has captured my imagination this week is uh, in this detail I read from uh, scholar Diane Chen. She just kind of mentions in passing, observing that the Samaritan uses the supplies that are normally carried by a traveler. So it's not as though he is equipped medically to deal with this. He's just using the supplies that are normally carried by a traveler. So I want to ask this question in response to that. If we were to apply that sort of way of thinking to the body of Christ, what are we carrying on our travels 
that will help fellow, fellow travelers who have been wounded. Pentecostal scholar Chris Green, I love the way that he applies this act of kindness by the Samaritan to the life and witness of the church. He says, when we encounter wounds in one another, our response is either going to infect that wound or cleanse it. If you've been in church for any amount of time, uh, you probably have experience with both of these responses. Maybe a wound that you've had that has been further infected by something that maybe somebody even in the body of Christ has said to you in response to your woundedness. Perhaps you've had, and I hope that you've had, maybe the opposite experience, maybe even here at, at Solid Rock, where you've been going through a, a really difficult time, a struggle that is almost too difficult maybe to even give words to, but there has been somebody who has mediated the presence of Christ to you through their their words. Would that we would become a place like that. Green takes this a step further, uh, which I'll just paraphrase here. He says, there are certain gifts that we possess in this community, apply this to solid rock, that are designed to address needs and wounds that others of us bear. So we are together as a community for the purpose of pointing wounded people toward others in the community who have the gift of healing certain wounds. So there are some things that I'm not equipped to address. Ask Hillary. There are some things that uh, I'm just incapable, right? Each of us has uh, some blind spots. But there are also, if we are to, to believe what the Apostle, says, Apostle Paul says about the, the body of Christ, gifts that we possess as the body of Christ, that make the body whole. So how might we, the body of Christ, be called to one another, knit together to address certain wounds? Wouldn't you love it if, well, I, I'll just say it from the first person, I would love it if somebody came to me and said, I'm really having trouble with X, and I had the, the sort of relational knowledge to say, oh, have you talked to my wife Hillary about that? She has experience with X. Wouldn't you love that? Man, if we just became kind of an index of the, the giftedness of our community to point people in the direction of uh, uh, people who have experience with certain kinds of wounds and uh, healing of, of certain wounds to mediate the presence of the body of Christ as the body of Christ. I'm going to wrap up. Um, Kevin, if you want to come. The third question, we've asked these questions from the, uh, uh, the plural, first person plural, we, but I, I, I want to return to this question that the lawyer asks, who is my neighbor? And, and really personalize it for just a moment. Perhaps you're in a place this morning where you're asking, who is my neighbor? From a place of isolation. I would encourage us to begin to take relational risks as a community. Also, thinking in terms of our community here at Solid Rock, would you allow the Lord to speak to you this morning about what you're carrying on your journey, the giftedness that you possess that might be an answer to the prayer of another in the community? So, if we are the Samaritan in this story, what is the oil and the wine that we carry? 
In closing, I just, I just want to note, um, sometimes it's important to look back at the way that the, the church through the centuries has interpreted a parable. They're not always wearing the glasses of like modern Christian readings. And the early church often depended upon allegorical readings of scripture. So if you are familiar with uh, Origen of Alexandria is a great example of somebody who put forth a lot of allegorical readings. It's a weird way to close the message, I'm just realizing. But applying this to this parable, he said, the man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho is Adam. Jerusalem represents paradise. So you get the sense here. Characters in the parable kind of serve to point toward a broader reality. This is how the historic church has approached this text. Jerusalem represents paradise. Jericho represents the world. The robbers represent hostile powers. Okay. The priest represents the law. The Levite represents the prophet. The Samaritan is Christ. Okay. Law and the prophets are not capable of bringing healing, but Christ, the Samaritan, is, is capable. I can get on board with this so far. <laughs> he goes on to say the wounds that the man feels are disobedience. The beast, the donkey, is the Lord's body, according to this interpretation. It's getting weirder by the second. The inn, which accepts all who wish to enter, is the church. That's a beautiful thought. The two denarii mean the father and the son. Not sure where he got that. <laughs> the manager of the stable is the head of the church to whom its care has been entrusted. The fact that the Samaritan promises he will return represents the Savior's second coming. So there's a lot that might be fruitful to kind of think about here, especially that idea of the inn being the church, accepting all who enter. I want to put forward in the form of a poem written by this scholar, Chris Green, um, a different way to kind of read this parable allegorically. If you would stand, I'm, I'm going to use this as our invitation to the table. Actually, um, yeah, we'll just do communion as we normally do it, form two lines down the, down the center aisle, uh, and uh, you'll hear the words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Let's look at a, a different way to read this parable allegorically that kind of uh, hopefully dovetails with what we've been looking at so far this morning. The poem is called God is Not Our Neighbor, maybe a provocative title. It begins, we suffer, we seethe, protest, invoke, fester, beg, pray, and pray, and wait, and wait, and wait, and nothing. So this is the man who's by the side of the road. In the dark, God wonders why we wait, why we ask for him. You have each other. God is not our neighbor. I, I am the man good as dead in the road. I am the lurking brigands. I am the hasty priests. You, all of you, you are the stranger showing an alien kindness. You, the weary keeper, waiting like my brother at the inn. God? Well, God is Jerusalem and Jericho and the treacherous road that binds them. The beast that bears us. God is the inn in which there's always room. 
God is the coins that buy our stay. God is the binding that binds all wounds. God is not our neighbor and cannot be. God waits and prays for you, for me, Samaritan, scapegoat, sinner, saint, to find each other in the dark. You are the one to bind my wounds. Yours is the oil and the wine. So as we approach the table this morning, I think we could all agree that God is our provider. I want to challenge us this morning that the means through which God provides for each of us is seated next to you this morning. I'm going to presume that some are sitting next to family members, but also some are not sitting next to family members. And it's still true that the person sitting next to you is often the means through which God provides. So as we approach the table this morning, would you consider your giftedness and consider that question through these lenses, who is my neighbor? Let's join together at the table.